You know, this semester, the chapel services have focused upon worship. And the main purpose here at the BMA seminary, at least from this student's perspective, is, is this. It's to equip men and women to go into their respective ministries, into the Lord's church, and to train and equip others to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth according to God's Word. On the Lord's Day, being Sunday, and every other day of the week, to reform and to restore true and proper worship and living until Christ either calls us home or comes back for us. As we consider this text this morning in verse 8 of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, and I'll read it in just a second, I want to kind of set the scene for you a little bit. Paul sent Timothy to reform and restore back into order the churches at Ephesus. They were out of order. These churches had become complacent, distracted, and deceived. Timothy's being sent to confront and rebuke false teachers, false and ungodly leaders. He's being sent to correct unsound doctrine and proclaim sound doctrine. He's being sent to rebuke, rebuke behavior in the church that is contrary to true gospel-shaped living. And he's being sent to instruct the saints on how to live and behave in the church so that life and worship will be orderly as God has instructed in His Word. You know, this is an ever-present need. I don't know if we realize this or not, but this is an ever-present need in every church across every age to be reformed and restored. It was a present need here in this first century church in every church since. Why? Why? Because Satan wages war against the church of Jesus Christ and more specifically against the people of God who are the church. He doesn't need to battle against those who are already His, who are under His domain and are by nature children of wrath. There's no need to attack them. He's, he's got them. He, he just wants to keep them. He's the children of God that Satan attacks and seeks to distract and deceive and distort their knowledge of the truth with lies because the children of God bear witness of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to free, to redeem, to regenerate, and to empower spiritually and supernaturally once dead people to rise and to live new lives, spiritual lives, eternal lives as the children of God alive in Christ. When a church fails to remember this constant need, this ever-present need to reform and to restore, well, the church begins to grow complacent and comfortable. And it begins to drift. 
And as we see in chapter 1, verse 18, it, it, it's no longer waging the good warfare as we see Timothy is, is, is called to do in the churches to wage good warfare. As we see in chapter 4 and verse 2, we see that those who are distracted and eventually deceived, faith is no longer held fast and good consciences become seared consciences. And then we can look back at chapter 1 and verse 19. You see the church stops influencing the culture from here out. And the culture begins to influence the church. And people make shipwreck of their faith. It's because of this very real and present threat common to all churches in all ages that, that the battle cry of the Reformation rings in my mind. Semper reformanda. Always reforming. If the church is not constantly aligning itself to the Word of God and with the Word of God and guarding itself against all other influences, it will most certainly begin to grow comfortably complacent and drift further and further away from the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. And that brings us to this, this morning's text. Would you stand as we just read this one verse? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. God's Word says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Oh, Father, be with us this morning. Be with me. Anoint me with Your Spirit to proclaim Your Word. Help us, O oh God, to be, remove the distractions, to not be comfortable and complacent, to not be fading away, but cause us now by the power of Your Holy Spirit, of Your Spirit, to tune in, to tune into Your Word. For Your Word is truth and it is powerful. And we need it to shape our lives. And so, Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so what does God say through Paul to Timothy and therefore for us today? Well, I think it's this, that there is a common threat to churches. And that common threat is that churches will, as I've already discussed, become complacent, distracted, and deceived. And it's from that point that then disorder begins to take root in the church. And that brings me to my very first point. It's found in the first part of verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray. My first point is this. Order must be reformed and restored. In every place men should pray. Well, what is every place speaking about? Well, it's no doubt speaking about every church. We can see the context in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
So every place is speaking about every church. John MacArthur makes this note in his commentary that, um, in fact, where Paul uses this phrase in other writings, the context is always in regards to churches. And so every place is speaking about every church. And, and more specifically, I think it's talking about when the church gathers corporately Sunday mornings to worship God. When the church gathers corporately. So then what is out of order? What is out of order? Well, men and men alone are not praying. Implying one of two things. Implying that the men are possibly forsaking this, this call to pray in the churches. And when Paul says, I desire then that in every place, he's, it's, it's speaking of his will. It would almost be better to say, I will that men would be praying in the churches. He's speaking with apostolic authority. And so men are possibly forsaking this call to prayer and or women are praying in the corporate gathering on the Lord's Day and should not be. Either way, things are out of order. Is such disorderly and unbiblical conduct happening in churches here in this culture, in America, or maybe in your home country? Well, of course... I think both issues are at play. Men are forsaking to pray as they are called to do, and women are either demanding or simply filling positions that men are forsaking, and therefore they are praying on the Lord's Day, gathered in the church, which is out of biblical order. And we know that this is the case because of the context. Look at verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not per permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Let me ask you. In saying that women cannot, should not be praying, or men only should be praying in the corporate gathering of the worship service, that obviously does not mean that they should never be praying. I mean, let me tell you what, I have a wife. And I love to pray with her. And I love when she prays for me. I love to hear her pray. Last night when I was laying in bed trying to rest my voice for this morning, I heard my daughter pray over the meal. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful, I'm telling you. And so, to hear women praying is okay. It's just speaking about here in the worship service. And we know that women are to, uh, as it says in verse 11, to learn quietly. But are women always to be called quiet? No. That's silly. Are they always to be silent? Absolutely not. It makes me... Uh, we look at verse 13 for a second. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. You see, there's the order. The order. The creation order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And that makes me think of Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, which I preach and study in the ESV, but one of my first Bibles was the um, Holman Christian Standard Bible. And I want to read chapter 3, verse 16 from Genesis from that translation. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Now, when I first read this as a, um, as a, a young man given that, that was living a uh, 
unbiblical wife as a professing Christian given to Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar. Yes, that was what I came up in. When I read your desire, speaking, God speaking to the woman will be for your husband, I was like, yes. Amen to that. I, I, that sounds great to me. And then my wife was like, this is not good. The desire is going, to use, is going to be to usurp your position, you see. And at one time, my wife was the spiritual leader in the home. And when by God's grace and grace alone, that finally got right-sided, there was a difficult transition there. You think about a boat that's flipped over, and when it flips back over, everything comes crashing down. Yeah, things break. There's, there's a little chaos, but you clean it up. It gets cleaned up. It gets cleaned up by God's Word and God's grace and, and His work of His Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, there is order here. It's speaking about the order. Now, some would refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5 where it talks about women praying and prophesying and as long as their heads are covered, right? Prophesying being preaching or proclaiming. But we have to read that in the context of all of the Scripture. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says this. I'm going to turn there <clears throat> to read it. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, which it's interesting that beginning at 26 where this break is, it says orderly worship in my Bible. So order, orderly worship. Verse 33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints. Does it say some of them? No, all of them. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And then verse 37 picks up and says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. This isn't just some extra biblical thing that we've thrown in and we can just make an excuse for. These are commands of the Lord given by apostolic authority through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that's why it's in our Scripture in God's most holy Word. Let me offer this. We saw Christ's perfect submission to the Father's will. And so I say this, may we who are in Christ and Christ in us begin to submit to the will and Word of God more and more. This is not meant to be demeaning or hurtful or to make women less than man, men or, or men greater than women. This is, this is God's created order. Submission is not oppression. You understand? You were oppressed when you were enslaved to the domain of darkness. But you've been transferred to the kingdom of light. And now you've been freed, not Oppressed, but freed to submit to God. And so submission is good for both men and women. The purpose that God created you to fulfill could not be greater, ladies. It could not be greater, men. This is God's created order. This is God's doing. We do not need to add to these God-ordained roles. We do not need to remove anything from these God-ordained roles, nor should we neglect and or forsake them. We simply must submit to these perfectly 
good and orderly roles created and designed by a perfect and loving God with faith and trust. Men, you must be praying when the Lord, when we gather in the Lord's name corporately. Reformation and restoration in the order of the church is required today. The next point is also a common threat for the church when it comes, when, when the church becomes complacent, when the church becomes distracted, when it becomes deceived. You see, because then the church begins to pray improperly. And that is the second point. Prayer must be reformed and restored. Well, what kind of prayer is Paul telling Timothy that he desires in all churches? It is this kind of prayer. It is gospel-shaped prayer, evangelistic prayer, and prayer for all people. And we know this is the, fact, the case because if we look at chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, we can read. We'll read verse 1 through 4. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet, and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Gospel-shaped prayer. Let me ask you, does our society need gospel-shaped evangelistic prayer? If you think not, Open your eyes when you walk outside. This society, this culture, this nation, this world is being swept up into more and more evil. Evil is in fact proclaimed as being good. Lies are proclaimed as being truth, declared to be truth. That being said, it must be acknowledged that I can't save anyone. And neither can you. But God can. And He is. He is. The church must stop praying to receive some new revelation or some new method of evangelism which is ultimately, ultimately determined by the culture instead of God's Word, the Scripture, to be able to reach the lost. I mean, are you kidding me when we do this? We have Christ and His glorious Gospel. What else do we need? We need to proclaim His glorious Gospel. We need to live out Gospel-shaped lives and lift up Gospel-shaped prayers. And we must proclaim His Word in season and out of season. No. We need men. Men to stand on the Lord's day and to cry out, like Paul did to God. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, for kinsmen according to the flesh. Do you feel that way when you gather on the Lord's day? Is that 
where your heart's at? Is that what your church is praying? Would you wish yourself accursed if you could just see your brothers, your kinsmen, your fellow countrymen, your friends, your neighbors to come and be saved by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? If you're praying that kind of prayer, it's going to have impact on your life. And it's going to have impact on theirs. That kind of, that's the kind of prayer that God wants to hear. These are the prayers that God answers because they are prayed according to His will. It is time for the prayer life in the church to be reformed and restored. Gospel-shaped evangelistic prayers in the church rightly acknowledges that which is impossible for man, but is possible with God. These kinds of prayers drive out Satan and his demonic influences from people's lives in ways that nothing else can because they are reliant upon the supernatural and miraculous work of our triune God. I understand this, as I've already alluded to, gospel shapes prayers not only influence the lives of the lost, but they also shape and form the hearts, minds, and lives of the believers and the churches who are faithfully praying evangelistic gospel-shaped prayers. It is time for the men of the church to pray earnestly and fervently for the lost during the corporate gathering of the church on the Lord's Day and for the women to be praying the same way all other times. And third and finally, a common threat for churches that have become complacent, distracted, and deceived is that the lives of believers begin to drift closer and closer to the world, becoming more worldly instead of godly. And as a result, their lives begin to contradict the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and His holy word. And so this is the third and final point, lives must be reformed and restored. Found in verse 8b, the second part. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. <clears throat> what kind of lives should the children of God be living? Gospel-shaped lives. We should be praying gospel-shaped prayers and we should be living gospel-shaped lives. Now, you may be wondering, isn't this speaking about the position of the body in prayer, lifting up holy hands? Well, what, does that, what does that look like exactly? I mean, is it, is it hands flowing about like we might see in contemporary worship services? Is it, is it done in order to draw attention to yourself and make some sort of spectacle? Well, historically speaking, the Jews, and you see this, they often pray with their hands upwards, their palms upwards to heaven and their arms spread. Sometimes like this, with their heads up. Sometimes with their heads bowed down. I find it interesting, it's like the hands of a beggar. But this is not so much about body position, but a position of the heart. You see, remember I already read to you chapter 2 and verse 1 that prayer should be made for all people. And then chapter 2 verse 4 tells us why. Um, it, because the reason for prayers to be made for all people is that God desires all people to be saved. So we do this, 2.8b. 
We pray without anger or quarreling. Now let me ask you. Obviously, we shouldn't be, have anger and quarreling within the church. That's divisive. But let me remind you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities of darkness. And so we don't look at the world and, and grow angry and, hatred and, and, and hateful towards them or hardened towards them. You shouldn't be surprised when unsaved people do ungodly things. They're enslaved to the domain of darkness. And so were, one, were you. So was I. It's almost as though I imagine the Pharisee and the tax collector or the publican. I'm sure he had his arms stretched out wide. Oh God, I'm thankful I'm not like that man. That anger and quarreling is probably more like, don't pray for them, they deserve hell. And oh, don't we all? <laughs> your hand position does not matter. The position of your heart matters. How specifically can lives be reformed and restored? Well, let me ask you, what are holy hands? I mean, if, if, look at your hands for a moment. Just look at them. If, if we took a picture of all your hands, and we lined them up and we took down the plaques of the hall of ministers and we put up everybody's hands. Who could walk down the hall and pick out which hands were holy? None of us. But it does make me think about something. It reminds me of a man who desired earnestly to see hands before he believed. In John 20, 25 says this, so other disciples told him, speaking of Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Mm. Holy hands, in my most humble opinion, implies a crucified life. A crucified life. What is a crucified life? It's a life that looks less and less like your own and more and more like Jesus Christ. What did, what did John the Baptist say in John 3.30? He said, He must increase. I must decrease. And you may be wondering, are we really called to bear a cross? Are we really called to... Uh, carry a cross to, to, to live a crucified life. Well, let me just rattle some Scriptures off. You're not going to be able to turn to them fast enough. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Now you may be saying, well, that's for disciples. Well, all Christians are called to be disciples. Number one. Number two, you may be saying, well, that's just for the twelve. Well, let's keep going then. Luke 9, 23. And He said to all, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. So this isn't just like a one-time thing. This is a daily thing to bear this cross, to take up a cross. Mark 8, 34. Calling the crowd to Him with His disciples. So now we got all people, right? He said to them, all of them, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. 
Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10, 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I wonder if this is why Paul was able to say in Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified. That means cross, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And then the last one. Galatians 5.24 and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You want to know what the problem is, I believe? I had this conversation over the Thanksgiving holiday with a dear beloved family member. The problem is this, that too many Christians, too many professing Christians are leaving Christ on the cross. And I have news, He isn't there anymore. He was on the cross and He died on that cross. And we buried Him. He was buried in the grave. And three days later, He rose from the dead. Christ is not on that cross anymore. So what does that mean for us? Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism in the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Stop putting Christ back on the cross and start carrying a cross with you daily. Everywhere you go, you can put your, yourself, your ways, your ungodly desires, your worldly pursuits to death on that cross because you know that it was you who died on that cross with Christ. He's your new federal head. Walk in newness of life. The resurrected life of Jesus Christ that He gives. He is in you after all through His Holy Spirit and you are in Him. Orderly churches need gospel-shaped prayer from gospel-shaped people. What a witness to this world of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of God in His people and His church. So as we close, when the church grows complacent, it becomes distracted, deceived, and sound doctrine becomes distorted. Paul sent Timothy to reform and restore orderly worship, evangelistic prayer, and gospel-shaped lives in the churches at Ephesus. And if you don't think that that is a current need in this church today, the universal church, the worldwide church, then you don't know what's going on. I'm in fear that you are growing complacent, drifting towards the world, becoming distracted and being deceived. <clears throat> now is always the time to be reforming and restoring the church. So there we have it. God has spoken to His people. May we 
be strengthened by His grace to be faithful and submit and obey His Word.